You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're featuring an interview with Dr. Helene Gale. Dr. Gale is the CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, one of the nation's leading community foundations. The trust works with donors, nonprofits, community leaders, and residents to lead and inspire philanthropic efforts that improve the quality of life for the residents of the Chicago region. For 30 years, Dr. Gale was one of the world's leading experts on infectious diseases, leading global efforts at the CDC and then at the Gates Foundation, and finally at Care International. Dr. Gale's global to local story gives her a unique perspective on issues of race and class and set the stage for the trust's attack on the racial and ethnic wealth gap. Let's listen in as Dr. Gale talks to Tom about the path forward for Chicago and America. Dr. Helene Gale, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Hi, it's great to be with you. Hey, it's uh, good to reconnect after many years. Um, Helene, we overlapped at the Gates Foundation like uh, 15 years ago. Um, sounds like you're in D.C. this week where you had a chance to reconnect with a couple of those people. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, you know, that, that experience was such an important experience, and I think those bonds um, will last for a lifetime. That alumni group is just some of the most um, talented and mission-focused people on planet Earth, right? Yeah, and I just think we were there at a, such a special time, too. I mean, in the early days when we were still um, just kind of, uh, you know, we had that zeal and that zest and that passion, and we were figuring it out as we went along. It was a, it was a special moment, I think. It, uh, it really was. Um, Helene, you, uh, is it right that you trained as a pediatrician? I did. I did. Yeah. Why? And then you went back, um, you went back to Hopkins um, for a master's in public health. Why that focus from individual kids to, to populations? Yeah, and I actually did my public health um, at the same time as I did my medical degree and then went and did my residency in pediatrics. So I had kind of planted the public health seed before doing my, you know, clinical specialty in pediatrics. And I, you know, I guess it comes from the fact that, um, you know, growing up, I always kind of thought of myself as a activist. I was very involved in, um, you know, the causes of the day and, you know, went to school because I wanted to have something that I could do that would, you know, give back, if you will, and hopefully make positive um, social change. I took, went into medical, went to medical school and chose medicine because I thought that health was a very tangible way that you could make a social contribution. But as I was thinking about this trade-off of individual care, um, I you know started hearing more about public health. I went and, and did a public health degree, but also wanted to have that clinical training. So I went ahead and did my specialty. But after after I finished my pediatric residency, I felt like having seen so many cases where individuals came in and out of the hospital or in and out of the emergency room, and the real reason that brought them there was less um, the individual disease and more the systems um, that weren't in place or the home environment that they came from or you know the issues that we now call the social determinants of health. And I felt that if I wanted to make the greatest impact, while I loved taking care of individual patients, 
if I thought about my patient as communities or nations or the world, which is what public health is, then I thought that I could have a greater um, overall contribution and impact at a population level. So, Helene, you went on uh, to have uh, an incredible 30-year career in um, in public health. There, there was a, a couple of decades where you were kind of the Dr. Fauci for the globe, where you were the global expert on uh, on infectious diseases. You ran the CDC Center for HIV, sexually transmitted diseases, and TB. And then, as we uh, mentioned at the outset, you you launched a similar efforts at the at the Gates Foundation, what an incredible experience to, in both of those roles, really, to take on the most challenging uh, diseases on a, on a global scale. Uh, I don't know what the question is in there. You, um, well, first of all, thank I, you for that contribution. I don't know that I ever um, ascended to the heights of, uh, of Tony, Tony Fauci as I joke with him. He is, you know, he's become the Marcus Welby of. of Yes, to the world. Um, he has, but there's a few of us that know you were you were Dr. Fauci for the planet before. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, but you know, it, um, it 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 was a fascinating and wonderful opportunity. You know, I went to the Centers for Disease Control thinking I would go for the two year training program. It's called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, and I kind of thought I would go for a couple of years, get the practical training in public health just like I'd had the practical training in um, pediatrics and medicine, and then go back and do something uh, more uh, perhaps closer to uh, medicine and care. And I got to CDC and just found that it was such a special place and stayed for 20 years, um, probably doing 10 different jobs during that time. And it allowed me, I think, to really um, deepen and, and develop my skills in public health. But I also came right around the time when HIV was starting to unfold. Right. And interestingly, when I first went to CDC, people said, you know, um, when you, you, you go and you um, have the opportunity to, to interview with many different parts of CDC, and then there's a match program to, to match you with a different program. And everybody told me, stay away from that HIV thing because it's not that important. And, you know, we'll figure it out in a year or two and, and do something that's of real public health significance. Well, um, I did do my first assignment somewhere else, but ultimately decided that, you know, it was clear by that time that, that HIV was going to be one of those defining public health issues. And, uh, you know, for me, I think the interface between something that was very scientifically fascinating and just starting to evolve, but also something that clearly had a lot of social dynamics and, um, uh, as part of it. And we knew we, early on that HIV, you know, while anybody could get the virus, it wasn't distributed randomly. And a lot of the social drivers uh, you know, whether you were poor, whether you were part of a group that was marginalized or stigmatized like injection drug users or uh, gay men or ultimately uh, really having a big impact on communities of color who had been you know, left out of uh, access to health services. Um, you know, we knew that this had a real interface between risk factors that were socially determined as well as the disease itself. And then I went on to do a lot more globally, where again, 
um, that interface between global poverty uh, and risk for HIV, um, gender and lower status in societies, et cetera, and that putting people at risk. You know, I think for me, who's always had this interest in kind of society along with health, um, it was um, a very captivating issue to spend time in and, and have that opportunity to have a population and ultimately a global um, impact on uh, preventing HIV. It's, it's interesting that 20 years later that we now think of HIV as really as a chronic um, illness that we we still don't have um, a cure, much less a, a vaccine, but have been pretty successful globally treating it as a, a, a chronic illness. Uh, I, I wonder, I was thinking this morning about um, the current pandemic that we're facing and how you're thinking about that. Is this something that like HIV could be around for uh, years to come? Well, you know, I think there, there are probably some differences, but also some similarities. I mean, clearly, we have seen that it is disproportionately impacting populations that um, uh, were already financially and also health-wise more in, unstable. But from a medical perspective, I think they're very different. You know, this is right. a more serious condition than the flu. It's probably more like the flu than it is like HIV, a respiratory, uh, respiratorily transmitted infection, uh, a vaccine um, is probably going to be found sooner than, you know, we obviously don't yet have an HIV vaccine. Um, there'll be more focus on vaccines than on treatment. Treatment now for HIV is really um, how we've been able to manage it as a long-term chronic infection. And um, treatment in some ways has also allowed us to um, further prevent the spread of HIV. So I think there's similarities, but there are also some real differences, you know, in terms of the biology and the science of it. Would you like to add an editorial comment about how we've done as a country dealing with COVID? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think, unfortunately, um, we have not had the coordinated national response that something right. like this requires. And, you know, if you look at it, there's kind of a, um, you know, a, a whole smorgasbord, if you will, of ways in which people have, states have handled this and the states that have really stuck to public health guidance and have listened and worked closely with public health systems within the states or the cities, you know, are the states and the cities that have done the best and those who have not, um, have not done as well. That said, it shouldn't be, we should not have treated this in a way that didn't have a strong national response, um, a strong coordinated response at the national level and a strong coordination with, uh, as the U.S. with the rest of the globe. And I think it's unfortunate to see this sort of um, you know, lack of leadership at the national level because it's cost us hundreds of thousands of infections and, and causing a lot of death and uh, suffering on parts of um, many, uh, many, far too many Americans. 
Uh, Helene, after uh, almost a decade leading uh, CARE, a, a great uh, international uh, aid agency, uh, about three years ago, you took on the leadership at the Chicago Community Trust. Um, tell us what that is and why it was of interest. Well, um, Chicago Community Trust is uh, one of the oldest um, community foundations in the nation. And community foundations are kind of this interesting animal, <laughs> this interesting uh, creation, if you will, be somewhere in between a traditional foundation and a nonprofit. Um, we have both a side where we bring in money, but we also make grants. And, you know, we are, we, people who care about their community and want to invest in their communities entrust their resources with us, uh, believe that we understand where the needs are greatest in the community so that we're able to use those assets to make positive uh, social change at the, at the local level. You know, I kind of um, stumbled into this job. I was in between care and um, doing a uh, kind of short-term role, um, helping to, to launch a new um, a, a new organization. And I got a call from a headhunter. Um, you know, I had just moved to D.C. I was ready to plant my roots there. But I think partly because I had spent so much of my time globally, and it, it, when we had the election in 2016, which really kind of shook me to my core in many ways, because I recognized how we were more divided than perhaps I had realized as a nation. And I think we were experiencing a lot of social turmoil, if you will. And so for me, I really felt having spent 30 some years of my life focused globally and somewhat nationally as well, that being in a, in a, at a local level where you can get things done, where you're part of a community would be an interesting um, opportunity for me as I kind of um, moved to the end part of my career. And so, um, and Chicago is a fascinating city. I hadn't spent a lot of time in Chicago, but uh, you know, I knew a lot about Chicago. People who had come from Chicago are some of um, the most inspirational people, including our former president and others. Um, the so you know, it, it was a city that I've always admired. And so uh, when I got the call to consider it, um, talk to people, I was really compelled by the opportunity, and really, you know, do believe that so much of what needs to happen, so much of the innovation that that needs to happen as we as we rethink how we operate as a society, I think will happen at the local level. So it's been a fabulous opportunity. Um, I love it more than I thought I would and um, finding it incredibly um, satisfying. It, it is one of the world's great cities. Um, it, it has uh, what might be my favorite uh, city skyline. It's right on a, a, a great lake. It has some of the best uh, public parks um, in certainly in America, it, um, it's a major business center. It, it's, um, there's a huge number of, uh, of education, uh, companies and, uh, nonprofits in Chicago. So it's important to our education sector. Um, 
but it's a city and a state uh, that that also illustrates the inequity yes. in America. It, it's uh, Illinois is a state um, plagued by some of the most inequitable school funding in America, uh, where you can drive um, 15 minutes from downtown and be in a school that gets 50% more money than a downtown school that serves kids that are 100% um, in poverty. So in, in the best and sort of worst ways, Chicago is uh, really an ecosystem of America. I love the fact that you've created an agenda. You're, you're, you know, you're not only responsive to the, the interest of donors, but that you've really created um, a beautiful strategy focused on a thriving and equitable and connected Chicago um, at the heart of that is um, the idea of attacking the wealth gap. Why did you choose that, and how are you trying to take on um, inequity and the wealth gap in Chicago? Yeah, and I, you know, when when I came, um, you know, I, I took some time to get to know the city a bit, and you know, think about where we might, as an organization, really prioritize and focus our, our resources. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges in Chicago, obviously. You mentioned education, um, clearly a big one. Uh, you know, there's a huge life expectancy gap uh, in Chicago, probably the largest in the, in, the, um, in the nation, 30 years between living in gleaming downtown Chicago and go a few miles uh, to some of the neighborhoods in South Chicago and life expectancy plummets by 30 years. Uh, so you live 90 years if you're downtown and in wealthy neighborhoods, 60 years if you're in Southside Inglewood. Uh, you know, violence is, has plagued uh, the city and you can go on and on. And we could have chosen one of those issues. But as you look and peel things back, it's clear that the, it, the root cause, the underlying issue really is this sustained and growing wealth gap. And, you know, we see between uh, African-Americans and Latinx um, tenfold wealth if you compare uh, a black family's wealth to a white family's wealth, uh, eightfold if you compare Latinx to white families, you know, with, with white families being either eight or 10 times more wealthy, if you will, on average. Uh, and so, you know, underneath all of these issues is this staggering wealth gap. And, you know, I argue um, that while from a social justice standpoint, it is important and the right thing to do, African-Americans and Latinx community make up two-thirds of the population in Chicago. You can't hold two-thirds of your population back and expect that the rest of the city, the rest of the region will move forward. So just from pure economics, as well as, you know, what's the right and fair and just thing to do so that families are able to educate their children, put food on the table, have uh, healthy outcomes, et cetera, we said this, this was the issue where we felt we could make the biggest contribution. And so we've kind of develop, developed a strategy that looks at three aspects of work. One is at the household level. How do you help to grow household wealth? And we put the focus on wealth because income, people talk a lot about the income gap, but income is a slice in time. Wealth are the assets that you carry with you, that you pass on to your generation, and that allows you to have a certain sustained uh, type of uh, uh, life and life outcome. So we, 
you know, looked at how growing household wealth, which includes incomes and jobs, home ownership, entrepreneurship, and also debt, because we know that people may accumulate assets, but if you have, um, if you go into debt because of student loans, um, uh, predatory lending, et cetera, you, you, you aren't going to be able to, to keep those assets, if you will. So household wealth. We also put a focus on driving investments in, in um, neighborhoods. Um, a study came out recently that showed, as an example, that a single white neighborhood in Chicago had more mortgage lending than all of South Chicago, Black South Chicago neighborhoods together. And we know that lending practices, where where private dollars uh, go to develop infrastructure, et cetera, is disproportionately um, going to white and prosperous neighborhoods. So how do you drive not only public dollars, but also particularly private dollars, which really stimulate economic growth? And then a third component is uh, how do you have help develop community power and community activism? And so we have a real focus on how are we making sure that we are working with communities to lift up their voice, to spark action, and make sure that they're at the table when decisions are made about their lives. So our, you know, our strategy is household, neighborhood, and community, and really trying to drive change at all of those levels with you know, rel relatively aggressive five and 10 year goals. But we think if we can make a difference, and it's not us by ourselves, it's working with partners, if we can make a difference in this, then I think there's so much that will, um, so many ways in which Chicago and communities will benefit as a result of it. Have you seen investors um, st step up to that agenda? Yeah, there's a lot of it. There, there really is a lot of enthusiasm. And I would say that, you know, what's happened in COVID and the disproportionate impact on communities of color has kind of amplified um, what we, you know, what, the message that we started out with, and it has been quite heartening and it sad, you know, sad circumstances. But I think the the COVID um, impact on communities drives home the message of why this wealth inequality is such a foundational issue. And then add to that the racial tensions following um, the George Floyd um, murder. I think, again, it was one of those moments that really amplified in people's minds. You know, if you didn't think there was a problem, it's pretty clear we still have a problem with race in America and that that problem is not just something that hurts individuals. It's something that hurts communities um, and cities and our nation. And if we don't do something about it, you know, I think it's it, it is one of those things that will continue to fray our society around the edges and ultimately at its core. I'm curious about the link to education in your plan or thoughts about um, what would improve the quality of and access to education, not not just K-12, but but lifelong learning in Chicago. Well, you know, it, um, we been involved with education for a long time at the trust and will continue to be involved, although it's, it isn't um, as, as central right now, um, particularly the K through 12, we're working a lot more on workforce development, the pipeline of those who graduate, getting them into um, either 
the kind of apprenticeships, junior college, uh, uh, community college, or other things that will help young people who did not have um, opportunity really using education as a way of really driving their their uh, future and future opportunities. And so we're, we're, that's where we're focusing primarily. But obviously, we work a lot with the educational system. And I think, you know, Chicago used to be considered the worst educational system in America. Uh, in the last decade, they have made tremendous strides. We're very concerned because, you know, in this COVID moment, the digital divide has really had an impact on um, students who live in communities where they don't have access to broadband and internet. So one of the things that we've done through some of the work that, that we're involved with with COVID response is to um, pool our resources with others to get broadband access to kids who are, you know, who are primarily doing online learning uh, as a result of COVID and really putting a real focus right now on that as a specific area within education that we want to work on is making sure that these kids don't get left behind. We don't know if schools are going to reopen. We don't know if they're going to reopen fully, partially, uh, what they, you know, what September will look like. And we don't want those children to fall further and further behind. It, so I appreciate how you, um, your, your analysis went to, root causes, I suspect that has something to do with being trained in epidemiology and public health. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I, yeah. And I think because public health does take such a root cause approach and you know, we focus on this whole issue of the social determinants of health, things like education, like access to nutrition, like uh, access to a living wage and uh, safe neighborhoods, et cetera, because we know that you know, 80 to 85 percent of the things that are modifiable uh, around your health and health status have to do with these social determinants of health. And and health care probably contributes somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 percent of health outcomes. So we know that, you know, if you can make a difference in these social determinants, you can have a huge impact on on health outcomes. And so I think that approach um, is something that I carry with me. How do you get at the root causes um, you know, sometimes you just have to put the fire out. You got to get the band-aids on there. But are you also making sure that you're thinking about the issues that are really at the core of some of these uh, long-term sustained challenges? Um, any any thoughts that you mentioned uh, schools reopening? Do, do, uh, do you have any thoughts about how that ought to be um, orchestrated? Well, you know, uh, just like my comments about the re the response to COVID overall, you know, I, you know, CDC put out some national guidelines. I think it's important that we do think about this in a broad way. Look at what the overarching public health principles are. Understanding that reopening is going to have to be done in um, at keeping in mind the local context. What you do in Chicago may be very different than what you do in Utah, which is very different than what you would do in Florida because we all have different you know, epidemiologic circumstances. But I think some of the core principles that um, CDC and others have laid out that look at the level of infection and then thinking, how do you, how do you uh, reopen safely with safety being at the core of it and then thinking about based on 
how you can keep students safe, whether you can keep students in a congregate setting or not, then do your best to make sure that if students aren't able to get back into schools that we're providing for their learning um, outside of the classroom. Uh, I w- wonder if you have any closing um, thoughts for or advice for um, in investors and policymakers, particularly at the at the state and local level. A- any insights there that you want to share? Well, first, I, I would just say um, how important I think getting involved in in policy is. I think so often we think about what we do in um, in terms of programs um, and initiatives, but, you know, how we change policies, I think, has a huge impact on the success, um, whether it's in education or health or, you know, any of the issues we're dealing with. One of the things that we have a big focus on in our work on closing the racial wealth gap is really um, policy and advocacy. You know, poor public policy got us to uh, some of the situations that we're in when you think about policies like redlining and other things that denied home access to African-Americans. If we can reverse some of those, the impacts of poor policy, uh, you know, I think we can make even bigger changes. And I think that's the same for education. You know, I would love to see us think about how we fund education differently as an example. Uh, You know, I think there's a lot of things that can be done that can make a big difference in how we Uh, provide so that all children have the opportunity to have access to a high quality education, no matter where they live, no matter how high, you know, how high or low their property taxes are. You know, I think it just should be a right in this country that children have access, equal access to high quality education. We really appreciate your focus on the wealth gap. I I just think it's really a smart strategy that aims at, at root causes long and it's a long-term view and a long-term fight but uh, the focus on growing household wealth and um, and catalyzing uh, neighborhood investment and and then building this uh, collective power uh, this collective advocacy is uh, it seems like a, a super smart strategy um, it keeps- congrats on your initial success there thank you it keeps us busy. <laughs> Uh, it's a great city and, and better, I think, because you're there um, in the fight. So, uh, Dr. Helene Gale, we appreciate uh, your 30-year contribution to, to public health and uh, your, your recent efforts uh, to make Chicago a better place to live, learn, work, and play. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks. Good to talk to you. A big thanks to Dr. Gale for joining us on this week's episode. We appreciate her global contributions to limiting the devastating impacts of infectious disease and for her recent commitment to transforming opportunity in Chicago. For more on community development in Chicago, be sure to listen to episode 253 with Leah McIntosh, where we explore the Lawndale miracle. I've got that linked in the show notes for you to make it easy. All right, that's it for today, listeners. Before you go, make sure you rate and review this week's episode and hit subscribe. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.